The reading is taken from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4, and it's on page 4 of the Bibles. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the word of the Lord. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 2. And if you happen to have Genesis 1 still um, in your mind, you know, the six days of creation and the particular order that things were made, and then you've just had this read to you, you might sort of think, hmm, you know, you do the old school exam question, compare and contrast. And you might think that there are um, some differences between them as accounts of uh, man's creation. There are obviously the six days, and here we have one day. In, the, um, in Genesis 1, the word for God is Elohim, and Elohim is a plural word. Remember, he said, let us, little insight into the Trinity on sort of page one. And whereas in Genesis 2, the Lord God is Yahweh, it's singular. It's the personal God that Moses encountered, I am that I am. And then there's the order in Genesis 1, there are plants, then animals, then man. Here, it's man, then plants, and then animals. In Genesis 1, you have male and female. In Genesis 2, you have individual, personalised human beings called Adam and Eve. Now these differences have led some people to conclude 
that what we're talking about is two separate accounts of creation that have been stuck together here. However, I think if you read them carefully, there's not really anything in one that contradicts the other. In fact, if there were, it would have been pretty unlikely that any compiler would have put them together. No, I think it's quite clear that they complement one another and are in harmony with each other. So Genesis 1 gives us the big panoramic view. It's like, it's like looking at the world from a satellite or a spacecraft above and they see the whole globe, or at least the half of it that you can see at any one time, um, if you're up there. And then Genesis 2, oh no, sorry, then, then what the guy does is uh, you get various kind of stills as it gets closer and closer to the earth until you eventually end up with um, one person in one place at one time down here. So you've got the contrast. Genesis 1 is the big picture of the universe. Genesis 2 is focused upon the individual creation of the first human beings who had a God consciousness. In Genesis 1, you see, human beings are the climax of God's creation and so they are mentioned last. In Genesis 2, human beings are mentioned first because they are the focus of God's creation and everything operates around them. So let's have a look at man's creation. First, his body. Verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed um, into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So there is the material and the spiritual. Man's body is formed by God from dust. In Hebrew, Adama is dust and Adam is man. And God breathed life into him, into Adam. And the body is made from existing raw materials, but life, or as Genesis 1 puts it, the image of God is directly made by God himself. And that is something that we are aware of, aren't we, in our daily experience. Somebody's said if you could extract the various kind of elements that we have, they're probably worth about £1.50. Um, but we are made up of elements. And uh, we're very aware of our physical existence. But we are also conscious of God. It's God who put eternity in the hearts of man, the writer Ecclesiastes says. We are aware that we are of the earth and we are of God. But are we to take these, this account literally or figuratively? How are we to understand this? Is it literal as if in the creation of man he is God is some kind of potter, or in the case of a woman, he is some kind of surgeon. Or are we to understand it figuratively? For myself, I think it is figurative in language. You see, God does not have a body. He is spirit. He therefore lacks lungs, and so he can't breathe. 
So Genesis 2 verse 7, God breathing into man's nostrils must be figurative. The trees of life elsewhere in the Bible, in Proverbs and in Revelation, are clearly symbolic. So if they are so there, then it's most likely that they are here. And that's where looking sometimes at the book of Revelation can be helpful. You'll find the verses I'm going to just read in a moment um, from Revelation 12 on page 1241, 1241. So if you'd like to just turn to that. You see, the thing about Revelation and Genesis, if you think about it, no human being was around either when the universe was created. You know, Adam didn't know what had gone on before because he didn't exist. And similarly, in the future, when we think about, um, about the new heaven and the new earth, and um, nobody's seen that yet. So the only way God has got of revealing them to us, he can't reveal it in historical narrative. So he has to use symbolic pictures, and he has to use, if you like, words and images from our world to give us some kind of hold on his world. So we read in Revelation 12, it's a figurative account of Christ's entry into earth. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now this is a figurative account of how God's Messiah has come into this world for God's people in the face of opposition, opposition from the devil, who's obviously displayed as having a bit of a tantrum when the Son of God decides to be incarnated in our world and to embark upon this rescue plan. If this was all we had about the arrival of Christ in the world, we'd not be able to reconstruct the literal events. Fortunately, though, we do have records of the literal events, namely um, the Gospels. However, with Genesis... We have little except the rather crucial statement in uh, Romans where, oh, yeah, Romans, where um, Paul says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ are all made alive. And for the analogy to work, what is true of one in terms of being a real person and there being a real fall has to be true because the other one, Christ, is a real person and did real things. So, being figurative does not rule out that there is a historic kernel to what is being said, I hope you see. Now, was this um, image of God in man, this life in man, was it a sudden thing or was it a progressive thing? 
Now, assuming that hominids existed from a few hundred thousand years ago, did the change from one of them into what is us, we're Homo sapiens, did that happen progressively over a long period of time where they developed over time into having the image of God? Or was, it a cha- was the change sudden? In other words, did God directly intervene in some way so that some of these hominids acquired the image of God pretty instantly? Or was there a development over time to a point where they then had it? And it's a good question. But there are some questions we don't, for certainty, know the answer. It could be either. I don't think either is incompatible with Scripture or that science rules out categorically either because basically there is a limit to what dead bones can tell you about living people and especially whether they had a God consciousness or not. So we're left with a choice, the choice that we had in Genesis 1. Theistic evolution is where there is a process of divinely directed development in which maybe the increase in the size of a hominid's brain means that it is capable of having a spiritual dimension and a God awareness. Or progressive creation. That, yep, there's long periods of development, but maybe one, possibly, John Lennox thinks, um, one or two occasions when God had to directly intervene. If you like, a miracle, a supernatural act. One might be where you turn inorganic things into organic, or here, to give a God consciousness. So a long period of time, but then God, to use scientific language, zapped them. They acquired this divine awareness. So you have to work it out for yourself. You'll probably find the answer in science rather than in scripture. So where and when was Eden? Well, because Adam and Eve are real people, there may well have been other people as well, because after all, where do, they, where do their sons get their wives from? You know, they just tell us about Adam and Eve. But uh, since they're real people, they have to have a home. So where was it? Well, Eden means plain in the east. And the choices seem to be, if you like, the top of the Persian Gulf, about where Kuwait is or Basra is, or more likely under the sea, because it has uh, covered the land since uh, those times. Or, and more likely, it's in what's called Kurdistan, which is northwestern Iraq and the eastern borders of Turkey. And which it is depends on whether you're opting for the source of the two rivers that we can identify, the Tigris and the Euphrates, or whether you're focusing on their confluence and their emergence in the Persian Gulf. The attraction of eastern Turkey may be that we know that some of the oldest cities in existence are from that part of the world. They go back 10,000 years. And Tubal Cain, who's mentioned in Genesis 4 as a metalworker, comes from there. 
When was it? Well, we're speculating, but it's reckoned that Homo erectus emerged out of Africa about 1.8 million years ago, and that all human beings can be traced back genetically to then. But it doesn't seem that they were human beings, Homo sapiens, as we are. We may originate from around 300,000 years ago, or sometime shortly after. Then there is work and pleasure. Now, it may seem difficult to you imagine if you're finding your work a real drudgery at the moment. You know, there are lots of areas of uh, life, particularly in public service, where you all signed up for something and you spend far too much of your time recording all the stuff that you do for somebody who may or may not ever read it. And it's disheartening. It's not treating you as the professional that you are. And the thing may be a drudgery. Well, fortunately, times change and there may well be hope. But um, here, work is not deemed to be toil at all. God set it all up and man is there to cultivate it. There was a mutual dependence. Man depends on God for life and God depends on man for cultivation and actually if you think about it reproduction only we can create human beings who can have a relationship with God so there's mutual cooperation between God and man working for a perfect purpose And then we see that God speaks to man, the tree of life. Again, not a tree that you'd find listed in a a book on forestry. It is figurative elsewhere. For example, in in Proverbs, it is clearly symbolic. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And in Revelation 22, in describing the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, we read... 22 verse 2, 1250 if you want to look it up. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. In other words, the tree of life symbolises access to God. Entry to God's presence is found by availing oneself of the death of Christ for sins in Revelation 22.14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And those who subtract from Scripture do not fare well, verse 19. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Likewise, the tree of knowledge and good and evil is also symbolic. It symbolises God's demand for obedience. Adam and Eve are given moral responsibility. In their state of innocence, they only know of evil as an external fact, whereas they know of good through personal experience. However, should they disobey, as we know they will, they forfeit 
personal knowledge of original goodness alone and come from personal experience to know in their life evil. And God wished to protect them from that. So some points of application as we close. First, God intends us to enjoy creation. One of the most refreshing places in the Holy Land is a place called Sacne. Its biblical connection is with Gideon. It is in the Jezreel Valley on the, uh, on the way to the Jordan Valley. So if you have ever driven up from Jerusalem through the West Bank and through the hills of Samaria, which are pretty arid places for much of the year, or if you went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is at the northern edge of the Dead Sea, and you drove up that valley, which is also pretty kind of arid and waterless for much of the time, uh, then when you arrive at Sakni, this is like, some desert nomad arriving at an oasis. It has got lush vegetation. It has high palms and pine trees to shield you from the sun. It has green banks, like a cricket pitch, to lie out on and as you, as you bask there and then you jump in the, dive into the, the fresh pool. The spring water is all fresh and clean and clear. And you swim around in that and then come and uh, dry off. It is a picture of Eden. God intends his creation to be attractive for us. Paul to Timothy says, God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It's a privilege to be able to reach such places, to, um, to visit them and to appreciate God's beautiful creation. It's a privilege to enjoy outdoor sports, whether in the mountains or by the sea. And if we can't afford to go to such places, then we have the opportunities to see pictures in books or to watch David Attenborough programmes on television where we can also appreciate all that we don't see in the southern part of England. So we should avoid damaging creation. Sure, we are here to manage it. God's given us two things to do, to manage his creation and to multiply so there are more people. So if we build a dam to control our water supply, then we must landscape it and turn it into a recreational asset as well. The second thing, God wants us to cooperate with him. It is good to have holidays to the most beautiful places that there are, but as anyone who has been out of work for a few months will tell you, that you are made to work. And work isn't the same as employment, but we are meant to work. We are not meant to be idle. It does not satisfy us to be idle. Not that work is an end in itself, but we are to work in partnership with God. And if you look around the world, there are some fine examples. There is, for example, Israeli agriculture turning an arid desert into fertile fruit-producing land. 
There are the Dutch dike builders who reclaimed acres and acres of land from the sea and turned it to profitable use. There's even in architecture, we can see it in buildings. Some buildings, just like works of art, just like some music is, are concordant with creation. But there are those which are discordant with creation. And I know that a lot of it is personal taste, but not all of it. If you look at the buildings, as I've used this as an example before, the buildings over in Basing View, the best one, to my humble opinion, is, uh, is the Mount Batten building, the one with the hanging gardens of Babylon, as it were. They've got kind of plants growing in uh, different levels. That is a very attractive building compared to some of the neighbouring concrete slabs that leave much to be desired and probably won't stand the test of time. And thirdly, God made us to be in communion with him. The tree of life symbolises that. The fall spoils that, but God has provided a way back. Remember in Revelation 22:14, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, it may all seem a rather gory analogy, but the blood of Christ, his death, is what we should wash our filthy attire in, for his blood cleanses from all unrighteousness. His life was given in our place. But we have to take action. We have to wash away our sins by appropriating the benefits of the death of Christ for ourselves. And notice, those who in Revelation are left outside of the city and the tree of life, they are outside because they have not taken up the option of being cleaned up and able to enter. Blatant wrongdoing dooms anyone. Regrets are not enough in the face of sin. Only repentance, which is a complete change around, is sufficient. Archbishop Akinola, until recently, was the uh, head of the Nigerian Anglican Church, a church where this Sunday 20 million people will be in their churches across that country. Uh, He was writing in reaction to what's called the Windsor Report, which was commenting on some of the things happening in some parts of the Anglican world, which are pretty much at variance, clearly, with the Bible and Christian living. And his comment was, instead of a clear call for repentance, we have been offered warm words of sentimentality for those who have shown no godly sorrow for their actions and harsh words of condemnation for those who have reached out a helping hand to friends in need of pastoral and spiritual care. He's echoing what Paul writes in Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. 
And then finally, God made us to be morally responsible and obedient. People don't believe that God is serious, do they? They didn't then, and they don't now. People don't believe that people, by their own choices, will be outside forever. What the Bible calls eternal death. Just as when God said, you will die if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now Adam and Eve, as we'll see in chapter 3, didn't die immediately. God was merciful. But they did die first spiritually. God put them out of the garden, out of his presence. And then they died physically. And unless they had a change of heart, which is not recorded, they will have died eternally. Spiritual death separates the soul from God for the duration of this life. Physical death separates the body from the soul until the resurrection of the dead. And eternal death separates body and soul from God permanently. God has made us beings with a conscience and a freedom to choose between right and wrong. Adam chose wrong and did die in all these three senses of death. We, if we have had a change of heart and have reorientated our lives around Christ, have been made alive spiritually. And so we should obey out of gratitude. We should not be tempted into renegotiating the deal. If we do, it is at our peril. Now are there issues in our lives where we are not obeying Christ? Or are we, God forbid, trying to make out that we are a special case from everybody else who's ever lived? Well, what does this part of the Bible this morning tell us? Simply, that God gave human beings pleasure and work, communion with him and moral responsibility. And if there is any one of those four things, pleasure, work, communion and moral responsibility, missing, then we are seriously off balance and missing out on abundant life, the life he intended for human beings. We need, therefore, to cultivate all four for life as God intended for us. And that is the best life. Amen.